Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Airton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am very excited today because I have a very special guest. Uh, I've asked a lot of people about what the future is going to hold for our entertainment industry and what we can be doing to prepare. And a lot of people are very afraid to conjecture because every day changes. One day uh, masks aren't available, so we shouldn't be wearing masks. The next day masks are available, so we should be wearing them. I think we should washing our hands has always been a constant. But that's just not enough. It's not enough to make people feel safe. It's not enough to revitalize our industry. So I'm very fortunate today to have a guest who's willing to conjecture. And it's a very well-researched opinion on the subject matter. So I'm very excited to welcome Jim Digby. He is the co-founder of the Event Safety Alliance, as well as so many other titles that it's just easier to just call him a very good friend and and a wonderful human being. He's an enthusiastic survivor of this industry. So thank you so much for taking time to sit with me, Jim. I really appreciate it. Uh, Man, Chris, thank you so much. It's a real honor to to be asked to be on your podcast, your well-known podcast, I might add. And 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 thanks for the years of, uh, of support. And at least in, if, if in spirit, if nothing else, I know that PLSN and, and Nook and yourself and Terry have all been, you know, been really great about making sure that we get heard and we get seen and, you know, talking about the least sexy subject in the music business. Nobody really gives a <laughs> shit about it. Right. Uh, just to get, just to get five <laughs> words in print is a, is a minor miracle. So, we, you know, uh, I, I, we know, we don't get a chance to say we're grateful often enough, but yeah, I'm <laughs> super, super grateful that we got you out there. <laughs> it, it is tough. It's gotta be tough for you to be as, wonderful as a hu- of a human being as you are to be also be known as like the safety nerd you know like oh man here, here comes the wet blanket jim dig gonna make sure that we all have a job tomorrow and the next day next day and make sure that everybody's goes home to their family safely like oh man yeah it, it is definitely a, i like the wet blanket analogy it feels sometimes like that's exactly the response I get from folks. So you're <laughs> such a freaking wet blanket, you know. Charlie and I banter about it all the time. They're taking the fun out of the business, yeah. Well, oh. it's, not so, it's not so fun to see somebody die, and, and and I joke, you know, Charlie's Charlie's a huge supporter of what we do. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know, okay. So it's it'd be easier to talk about great lighting designs, I'm sure, and, and, yeah. and maybe more, more, maybe more popular, but. Geez, somebody's got to talk about the uh, unfun stuff. Uh, I guess that's yeah. <laughs> it's it's so tough because the generation before you and I 
getting into this industry, it was just a bunch of pirates swashbuckling and throwing up lights and, you know, they would drop a light and just, just giggle there. And it became a, a, a story over beers and they would, you know, you hear the stories of people shimmying up the chain motors and you're like, you know, for, for the three times that that's successful, the one time it's not successful is, is a tragedy, you know, and that's uh, what we have to just remind people about. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I, um, I try not to profess or proselytize anything that I haven't had a personal experience with. You know, I can remember in my early, early, early days, you know, a post, post-accident, which I'm sure we'll get to, 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 you know, some time in the middle, still early days, climbing on a truss, and maybe I was 12 feet off the ground. You know, maybe I was in the Las Vegas Convention Center, Las Vegas Convention Center and thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing up here? No harness, no nothing. <laughs> you know, I got crescent wrench in my teeth, you know, halfway under the truss, trying to, trying to change a light lanyard to the tool a lot. Hey, hand me that. I just dropped it again. Uh, yeah, I mean, those were the days, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. our business is built on, but, you know, really respectable albeit pirate-like 60 years. You know, there's, nothing to, there's nothing to feel bad about our journey to get to where we are today. Or sorry, there's very mm-hmm. little to feel bad about, right? It wasn't right. that people were overtly circumventing safety. We were making it up as we went along. And to some yeah. extent, some large extent, we still are. And I think, you know, we because of a couple of moments in time, you know, we realize now that perhaps we need to be we need to behave differently, right? We just need to take care of each other. You know, uh, I'm sure that you and I have been guilty of it ourselves in our younger days where we weren't trying to actively hurt or subvert anything. It's just, there was a light that needed fixing. I had a, a Leatherman. I would climb up there, start wrenching around. And next thing you know, somebody's like, Chris, what are you doing? You're 20 feet in the air with a Leatherman and cowboy boots on. What are you and you just have to stop and take a, a an observation of yourself like oh yeah that was i don't realize how i got here but this is clearly an unsafe situation well i don't even i don't even think in those days we thought to ourselves this is an unsafe situation for me it was more like my muscles were trembling so bad because i had found myself on top of this truss and i and getting up seemed a whole lot easier than getting back down again. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, the, the right, the correct way, right? So, yeah. yeah, I think I got, I think I had those moments of, holy crap, what am I doing here? Yeah, I, I, I was a volunteer firefighter when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, and, and as a volunteer firefighter, I was doing things that I was probably, probably unqualified to do. You know, we, and we had done some, some rope access stuff where we were rappelling off of, you know, nearby 50 foot faces or, you know, nothing massive. Uh, but it did put, it did, it did expose me to some of that kind of danger that becomes so thrilling. Um, I mean, you go before that, you know, all I had was, if you want to talk about the origin story, do you want to go there? Oh yeah. <laughs> all, all I had was as a kid uh, was the arts and entertainment. You know, you and I came up at a time where, arts and entertainment were well-funded in, in primary school. And I was, a, I was a wayward kid, you know, in fourth grade, I had a teacher um, who was really a bully and she, was, she made me feel like I didn't have anything. 
And then in fifth grade, I had a teacher who turned that around. And, and that fifth grade teacher made me the master of ceremonies for the May Day Parade and the technician. And I was already geeking out, taking everything in the house apart. Um, and because of that moment with that fifth grade teacher, I had a light go off. I had like, this is where I belong. This is what I love to do. She passed my name on to junior high and my junior high school communications teacher acknowledged me on my first class with her and took me under her wing. And, and before you knew it, I was backstage. And we even had a television studio in junior high and I was operating cameras. And, and th like, this was the space. This is where I felt at home. Uh, and, and in sixth grade in junior high, we had testing for, you know, stage technician first class, stage technician second class, and you couldn't touch stuff until you had these tests. Interesting, we don't have that in professional life, but, you know, in junior high, we did. So, I, I, you know, I got through school on my passion for the arts and entertainment business in, at a very young age. And at the same time was a volunteer firefighter. And, you know, I dabbled in sports poorly, but, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was that AV nerd. I was the kid who fixed the projector on the cart, the overhead projector on the cart. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I tried college on for a minute and college and I didn't fit, uh, much to my father's chagrin. And then I went into electronics trade school and, and, and completed that. And, uh, uh, at, a, at a really interesting time when, you know, microcircuitry was becoming um, really prevalent in everything that we do. And my first job out of electronic school was carrying a gun, fixing the very first ATM machines. Like I was going around in a bank car with a partner, had a gun on, and we would go into the back door of these ATM machines and unclog them or, you know, clear the jam or whatever, you know, cl clean the clean the photo sensor. And, and that was my application of electronic school into a professional life. That was after being a mall cop for a minute. <laughs> That's where the fun police comes from. Um, <laughs> and, and my, my, uh, my mom saw an ad in a newspaper about a new a nightclub and theater being constructed near where we lived outside of Philly. Uh, and I went and applied and I landed, a, you know, my first entertainment gig, paid entertainment gig. Um, you didn't need the gun anymore. I didn't need the gun anymore. Thank God. Cause that really didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> but that, but that, uh, this was, this was a massively new construction nightclub uh, that, that was going to be 2,500 capacity um, and compete with studio 54 and the limelight and all those clubs in New York, 1983. Uh, and, on the, you know, I was a, I was an installer technician during the day, and in the evening, the dinner theater was open, but the nightclub had not yet had not yet um, uh, started working. And we were, you know, massive uh, mechanical special effects, hydraulic special effects, lasers, you know, the kind of lasers that you focus the beam yourself, um, and, and they were water cooled. And on the grand, and it had a twenty-two foot diameter spaceship that tracked out from the back of the house and on either flanking the spaceship were these shuttlecraft that they were made of the old school aerodynamic police lights. And there were two aerodynamic police lights per shuttlecraft mounted on a four inch I-beam that had a factory uh, trolley motor on it. And that mounted to a six inch I-beam and they flanked the big 22 foot diameter spaceship as it came out from the back of the house. 
And at midnight, the ship comes out, it lowers to the ground, the, these doors open underneath it and delivers a life-size robot that you've seen on a couple of TV shows. And, and uh, this robot was the host of the night. Hey, girls, what's going on, right? We could say all kinds of things we can't say now. And then the girls would step up on his little platform and dance with the robot. And I was the operator and the personality of the robot and the lighting jockey at this club. And on, <laughs> I used to, oh my God, my clothes, my clothing selection was ridiculous. <laughs> I'd be, by the end of the night, I'd be, I'd be playing lights in this glass fronted DJ booth in my underwear, you know, and just, oh God. Anyway. You weren't, um, you weren't in the robot. No, the robot was operated by a remote control pad the size of your phone that had okay. tactile, tactile buttons on it. And Got it. A, a microphone was in my sleeve and I would do like that. And I, I you know, and I'd roam the floor very near the robot and be its character. And it would look over at girls, it would check them out, you know. It, in the eighties, you could do silly things like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and, and the lights were played by this, you know, this, uh, prototype gear that was built for 54 that they the same guys brought down to this club and it was all touch sensitive keys like on the piano anyway on the uh the, the press opening night with 2500 people in the club the moment comes the spaceship trots out robot comes to the ground and the shuttlecraft come out and just off to my periphery i hear a scream uh, and uh, turned to find out that eight feet from where I was standing, a 300-pound lighting fixture had come off the end of the track, the aerodynamic police lights on the four-inch I-beam, come down straight through the skull of a girl and killed her dead about eight feet from where I was standing, and um, I, was, I was the guy pushing the buttons, controlling the lighting fixture. The, um, the contractors had not yet finished installing the uh, safety mechanisms. In fact, they hadn't even started installing safety mechanisms. They had put a C-clamp on the end of the track that would to stop this you know, factory trolley motor and it, it didn't work. C-clamp came off first, then the fixture came off and, and that was the end of the story. That's, um, a, that's a buzzkill for anybody yeah. involved, you know? Yeah, um, the, the club stayed open. And there was, you know, there was, uh, I had to give a deposition. There was a, you know, a, a journey through that whole uh, after effect. God, you know, not, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to what the girl's family had to go through, obviously. Of course. But, um, but you know, for me as a 19 year old kid at the time, um, it laid in some pretty serious scar tissue. Oh, but subsequent man. to that, yeah. Sorry. Oh, that's a, that's a moment. That's a life changer right there. Yeah. Yeah, and it teaches you to look for more of those. Subsequent to that, after everybody kind of, kind of got back on the rails, you know, we implemented safety checks like none, like the likes of which I'd never seen. I was in my first professional gig. We were the doors wouldn't open to this place until we ran every motor up and down twice. We checked all stops. We ran everything to the end of tracks. You know, it was this nightly ritual that was that built this um, acuity for making sure we're not going to let that happen again. Mm -hmm. And I'm 19, right? right. Um, so the, the, I stayed working there for a little while. I left for a minute to, to chase a, uh, you know, in a, a 
one of my first girlfriends down to Florida and um, I took up a job, I uh, got a job. You know, Florida at the time was gonna become Hollywood East Coast. That's what the press was. And I thought, oh mm-hmm. great, that's what I'll do. Um, that didn't work out, came back home, went back to work at the club. A couple of years went by, I, I met a girl at that time, I didn't know it. She became my wife after three engagements, <laughs> two to her. <laughs> uh, I went down to Disney for a hot minute. I worked there uh, doing lasers and pyro and special effects. And uh, while at Disney, I went to film school and uh, I was just trying everything I could in the entertainment space to land here in this tribe. Because one of the things I learned in my junior high and high school journey was, and I only can see it now, the reason I was so deeply involved there may have been related to uncomfortable things that were happening at home. And that I was in some way building my own family or being a part of a family that gave a different energy than the energy that was happening at home. And so those foundational building blocks of why I love to be here and, and you know why the entertainment space was such a suitable place to land, I now know that a lot of it has to do with the desire to be amongst other people like me or other mm-hmm. people who are as passionate as we are in our, in our business. And while I have not always been a great leader or a great manager through my journey and time in the business, I now know that I've rested on this idea where if it's family first, if we can get that part of it right, if we can get our family unit on the road right, all the rest of the problems kind of solve themselves. Um, yeah. So uh, that's a different that's a different diversion. You said we'd be wandering. So yeah, no, we um, are. We, we're a tribe uh, for for long expanses of our lifetime. We will be with people who are not our biological family, but I mean, we have to treat them like a tribe that we, we are traveling the world and these people have our backs and we have theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think that will play into a latter part of maybe what we get to talk about today, but I'm sticking with the safety element uh, just to close the loop on, you know, 1983 and how we get to ESA uh, when Indiana happened um, it was, it was a couple of years, two, it was almost two years after my son was born, first child. And we, we had a journey to get to being pregnant. And then we had a journey. He came two months early and there was, you know, life or death stuff happening when he came early um, that we, we all fought through and he survived and he's perfectly fine now. But it, it, it set this alongside the scar tissue of what happened in 83 was this scar tissue of mortality because we almost lost a son after trying for six t- six years to, to have a child. We really wanted to have a kid. And then Indiana happened and that stage collapsed. And, and, and this confluence of stuff was going on and swirling around my brain and the scar tissue from 1983 got ripped open. And, and one day I was home uh, working in the home office. And it was just me and my, my son, our son. And, and it went quiet outside my office, I was listening to him in the background and I'm like, quiet, I'm like, I better go check on him. So I go to look for him, I can't find him, he's nowhere to be found. And then I hear some rustling in the kitchen. So I go and I find him in the pantry, 
climbing the shelves of the pantry to get to some kind of food, right? Oh my God. So your dad's, you know, dad's first instinct, whip out the camera, take a picture, which I did. Um, but there he is in his diaper, halfway up the shelf, up the shelves. Hey son, what are you doing? And I'm fine, dad. Yeah, I know what are you doing. I'm okay, dad. Okay. And I just waited for it. And then he said, Hey dad, can you get me down? So, <laughs> so innocent enough, right? It means absolutely nothing in the big scheme of things. It's just a moment in time. But I went to bed that night and that kept replaying in my head. And Indiana was somehow on top of that replaying in my head. And, and I came to this place where my son didn't know he was in harm's way. He, because he knew he had an expectation of safety, right? He right. just was doing whatever he was doing and, and dad was there or mom would have been there. Somebody was there to look after him. No idea whatsoever that he was in harm's way mm -hmm. and an expectation of safety. Just like the seven people who died in Indiana yep, and the 55 people who were wounded in Indiana permanently, they came to that event or worked that event with an expectation of safety. And yep. we let them down. And I didn't sleep for a week after that, after those thoughts came to my head, um, which then turned into, you know, a phone call with one or two people and somebody else was already having a conversation. We can't let this happen again. So I was, for me, it was like, I had this commitment. What didn't I know? That could have been me in Indiana. It could have been mm -hmm. me and the people that I work with in Indiana instead of who it was. And, and I, and I couldn't, in good faith to this son we fought so hard to get, carry on doing business the way I was doing business, what went wrong? How, how do I know what to do to prevent that? So I started this journey of trying to find schooling for what I do, you know, anything, safety, anyone, anybody, anybody got anything at all for what I do as a, for, as a profession that would teach me how to avoid that moment in time. And, and you're shaking your head no, and that's, that's where I was. I'm like, no. we don't we don't do it we don't teach anything in our business so i found this 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 uh thing called the international association of venue managers and at the time they were running an annual safety class called the academy for venue safety and security and and it's a week-long thing that was taking place in dallas and i said well that's the closest thing i can find i'm going to do it Got it. I go down there and, 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 and in this room are venue managers. I've been in their venues. Hey, what's going on? And security guys from these venues. I've been in their venues. Hey, what's happening? But no production people, not one. It was a, it was a venue centric thing, but mm -hmm. where are the people that do what I do? So went through the class, learned so much, just took it all in as a sponge. I learned what, I learned what, uh, you know, risk assessment was and, and all these different, things that I was doing by intuition. Who knew that there were programs for those things? And one of the instructors was uh, the vice president of the, now the vice president of the ESA, an attorney named Steve Edelman. So after the whole thing was over, he and I were talking and I said, listen, man, my industry doesn't have anything like this, but you know, can you help? And at the same time, there were these phone calls that had John Brown on them and, and Lyle Santola and a long list of people who were, you know, we were gathering as frequently as we could to get on the phone. The group grew from two to four to eight to 22 to got it. It was unwieldy at one point. And we all agreed that something needed to be done. Um, 
And at, at some point, I, uh, with, a, with the help of a couple of friends, we proposed this idea of creating a nonprofit to address you know, the fact that we don't teach safety in our business, nor, and we don't even ask for it. We jokingly say safety third, but we also behave safety third. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that, that became the genesis of the ESA. Uh, and a lot of great people on those early calls who, who stuck with it as long as they could, or you know, the journey to where we are now is different story from the origin story, but that's how we got there. That's a great story. So many people have the expectation of safety as an audience member or as a crew member to just go in. Well, well, this this venue's been here for fifty years. I'm sure it's safe. I I can't imagine anything uh, unsafe would happen here because it's otherwise it would be closed down. And a lot of people think like, well, look at this bike rack. That's clearly been tried and true. But when people really just kind of t- peel back the cover just a tiny bit, there was even just a decade ago, there was nobody, nobody was doing that. They would put up a bike rack and they just, and just hope for the best. Yeah. I, I think it's maybe, it might even be worse than that in some places. You know, look, I did my first tour rock and roll tour with Nook. I had done a tour before that with um, Morris Lida, but it was a touring museum tour. It was a celebration of the 200th anniversary of the Bill of Rights, which is a big thing. Um, but my my first tour w- was with Nook in rock and roll for a hot minute. And, you know, there wasn't a person on that tour that wasn't staying up for nights on end and, you know, drinking and, and all the rest, you know, mm-hmm. and then, even the head rigger would stay up all night long drinking and snorting and everything and then climb and rig the next day. So it's not as if not only did we not, we not follow safety protocols. We, you know, we prioritized wrongly the things that we were doing. Was there even a safety protocol then? I would, you, there was no handbook that you could go to. No, no, none of that. Um, You know, I can remember, and I'm sure you do too, that when, when Wembley, and the O2 started enacting the safety rules where you had to wear a hard hat. And I want to tell you that was probably early 2000s. Um, we would go, yeah, fuck you. I'm not wearing a hard hat. No way. Right. And, and that was our stance as, as, yeah. as an American artist coming in. We were like, not a chance. We're not doing it. And, and eventually that rule evolved to, oh, well, then you're not coming in. But, mm-hmm. but th- there was this journey that, that happened in England long before ours. Their seminal moment, I think, I think is 1989. It was a crowd crush moment, if I've got it right. That this was, you know, this was in their Indiana in some respect. Mm-hmm. And they started deep diving into this culture of safety and the idea that, you know, we're all responsible for each other. And we all have a duty of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that slow, I mean, it was 10 years just to get to people putting on hard hats and high vis. And now, you know, we, we jokingly refer to England as safety Island because there's blaze orange everywhere. If you're crossing this, you're getting out of your truck or your bus into the highway, you're putting on high vis. Mm-hmm. And, and I now appreciate the hell out of that, especially as a dad. Uh, but even the double driver idea in England, you know, I used to across Europe, I, I used to be so pissed off about feeling the bus stop in the middle of the night. But now, like, I don't sleep unless I'm on a European bus with a co-driver. 
Like on a U.S. bus, I can remember the drivers going, Yahoo! And just taking, I'm going to do 1,200 miles tonight. I'll get you there in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't know any better. We just clamped in and held on and drank our asses off in the back lounge and, and got there, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I don't think that's the world we live in anymore. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you correctly said there's no playbook. So, you know, when ESA came to an ex- came into an exist into existence, it was to address specifically the things that caused Indiana to happen. And they were identified at least superficially as weather and structural. And while those things were complicit, and when we teach that moment, when we're out in the world teaching that moment, you know, I, I often ask the audience, the students, what caused the people to die in Indiana? Always say the weather, the structure. And they're always wrong. Because what caused people to die in Indiana was the lack of an actionable plan. Yeah. That simple. There was nothing else that caused people to die but the lack of an actionable plan. Yep. And that the weather and the structural failure, yep. They were part of it, but they were all part of a, a no actionable plan. Yep. And that's where we all lived in that moment. And to some extent, that's the good news because we can fix the lack of an actionable plan. We can't fix the weather. Right. We can do better about our structural monitoring, but failures are going to happen when it comes to that sort of thing. But plans and making them actionable that's something we can be responsible for. And that should be reasonably expected of all of us that we know what we're going to do in the event of X. Yes. And, and, but that's not where we are today, right? I mean, it's clearly that's what we should be. We're now eight years on, we're nine years on from our seminal moment. And at the Event Safety Summit Conference year on year in, in beautiful downtown Lidditz, Pennsylvania in November, we're, where our audience has grown from 60 to 600, you know, we, we don't see production people that look like me. There are very few of them there. There mm-hmm. are corporate producers there. There are insurance companies there learning about what we do and how we do it and why we do it. There are vendors there. But still to this day, our industry has not been challenged with a rapid respect or rampant respect for safety and the need mm-hmm. to learn more about it. It's tough because safety is so subjective, meaning that somebody out of front house could, could come to Jim and say, Jim, it, it's kind of windy. He's like, yeah, it, it's always windy here. Well, I don't know. I know, but it's kind of an unsafe level of, of windy right now. And there's no definable indicator or there's no piece of paper that says, well, if it's this windy, you keep going, but if it's this windy, you stop. And that's what just didn't exist before. And now I've seen it all the time where it's even posted. Now, if it gets to this level, windy, we stop. And that it it doesn't matter if I'm the rigger or the crew chief or the lighting guy. And you look, that's the number right there. If it's above that, we, we, we hang out, we, we stop moving, we, or we at least lower the trusses, you know? Yeah. And I think that up until the ESA guidance, it it was up to the individual player 
yeah. to make those decisions. And still by rule, by you know, there are no laws or codes. It's still up to the individual player. Right. And it's whether the individual player wants to go on gut or wants to go on subject matter industry experts who have documented the way to get there, right? Um, subjectivity is a huge problem when it comes to safety. Right. And I know now, because I've been on this nerdy safety journey, that you have to remove subjectivity. And, and, and while that may not be comfortable for some promoters, audience, producers, artist guarantees, you know, the list is long. If you want to behave reasonably uh, and be able to protect yourself in a court of law, you need to take these actions, right? The, the measure of reasonableness prior to the Event Safety Alliance in North America was whatever your gut tells you. Yeah. And, and reasonableness is how you get judged in a court of law. So we've raised the bar of reasonable expectation for what a show should have in its toolbox to mitigate risk. Prior to the Event Safety Alliance, and here's a little bit of a laundry list, prior to the Event Safety Alliance, weather cancellation insurance was triggered by an amount of rainfall over a period of time and did not take into account wind. Okay. Um, prior to Event Safety Alliance, there wasn't event-specific weather monitoring or event-specific weather safety risk mitigation, right? There was... And, and the insurance, the insurers only by and large looked at rainfall accumulation over time. Well, because we all got in the same room and we talked about, well, what about these other risks that are weather driven? What about lightning? What about, what about wind, right? Then, then we were able to get the insurers to recognize, oh, that's not as, not as complete as it should be. And we were able to say to the insurers, well, how do we get there where we can give you something that's a, as a bar of measurement to get a policy that responds to the fact that we've taken these things into account? And because we've had those dialogues largely at the Event Safety Summit, we now have insurers who look for these weather risk mitigation plans and create a different kind of insurance for you if you have them. And if you don't, it's a whole nother ball of wax, right? Mm -hmm. Which only increases the expectation of safety now because like, oh, now there is somebody monitoring that. They know that if lightning strikes within two miles, we take a break. If there's lightning within four miles, we continue. And I'm, I'm not using the right numbers here, but there's a definable yeah. indicator now. Right. So again, back to subjectivity. You're right, Chris. So um, we started out working with the meteorologist in Norman, Oklahoma at the Severe Weather Prediction Center. Where do you go? You go to the experts, right? Yeah. In Norman, Oklahoma, they see some weather. And oh, by the way, that's why the Severe Storm Prediction Center is there. So very early on in year one of the Event Safety Summit, Safety Alliance, we had these experts, doctors and meteorology working with us. And we were saying exactly what you said. We had an outer perimeter ring and an inner perimeter ring and an evacuation ring. And that was the extent of our knowledge or the extent of our thought experiments about lightning at that time. But as our, our very learned friends in Norman continue to look at this equation, and by the way, they're also looking at sports grounds as well, they, they started to refine those measurements. And now those measurements are not as rigid as 10, eight and four or whatever the number is. 
they are they are malleable to the type of storm, the velocity of the storm, the trajectory of the storm, and and and. And the reason I think we were at eight miles was our was our stopgap. You're gonna cancel or you're gonna postpone or safe shelter at eight miles was that the, the science proves that lightning can reach out as far as eight miles from a storm and put a strike down to the ground. It wasn't some arbitrary number. There was scientific evidence, we can go there too, that said this lightning can come out eight miles. So that became the reasonable measure. Now we combine that with wind speed, storm characteristics and everything else. And we get to rings that change shape and range based on the storm characteristics. The problem we had in the early days of that is, do you realize how many people in live events think they're professional meteorologists? <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of them. There's one Rock guy stars flies, too. Yeah. yeah, there's one guy who flies an airplane and that qualifies him to be a professional <laughs> meteorologist. So, you know, what we, what we were what we were trying to get to was a state of mind in the industry that we aren't professional meteorologists. Your phone is not a weather monitoring device. Yes, mm -hmm. it can inform you of some things, but it does not tell you the data science that you need to know to know whether or not to, on how to protect people's lives. Mm -hmm. For that, you need a meteorologist. Yep. So we worked because of our relationship with Norman we worked with a, a, a company that was campus right there in the uh, sitting on the pipeline of the world's weather data. This company campus there helped us to develop a weather prediction modeling, a weather decision modeling based on the thing. They're already, they were already doing it. They were doing it for transcontinental shipping. They were doing it for the train lines. They were doing it for airlines. So they're the experts. So mm -hmm. we brought the experts of weather as a service into the conversation. And they were able to create models based on live events at our behest that, and, and get them as affordable as possible. You turn the service on, you turn it off. You don't need to have a meteorologist on site because the data is the thing that informs the decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so we brought this weather as a service into the industry with the, you know, the world's experts are the company that does this. And we tried to also take, take people's thought that, the anemometer on the roof of the stage is not a safety device. It's a now casting device. It's not a forecasting device. By the time that anemometer is hitting your 40 miles an hour, you can't get the screens down. You can't get the PA down. It's too late. Mm -hmm. You need to know that those, weather, that, that those weather actions are coming in advance of the now caster. Not saying you, sh you shouldn't have one. We need to have one. We need to know what's yeah. doing on site. But in order to be actionable, remember what killed people in Indiana? In order to be actionable, you need to know in advance. 90 mm -hmm. miles up the road in Indiana, a symphony evacuated for the very same storm and nobody got killed because they actioned their plan. Yep. So it's not like Indiana didn't know this was coming. They just hadn't set up the communication line for people to, to pull the plug when they needed to pull the plug. And they didn't have the data yep. that they needed. So one of the things you just touched on is that other industries have already done this before us. And I think a lot of people are just assuming that OSHA or some larger conglomerate is already paying attention to this stuff, but we are such a niche, unique market 
I would imagine we we generally get overlooked for the those exact things that people just assumed were happening. But I mean, in in entertainment, when when we do an indoor event, it's it's usually just completely overlooked. And then we do an outdoor event, and people that we try and apply the same logic outdoors as we did indoors, and it it, it gets uh, it's completely uh, brushed over. Yeah, I, I think you've described a couple of problems there, right? By and large, folks mistakenly think that OSHA is a policing agency. OSHA is not yeah. a policing agency. OSHA doesn't come in until you hurt somebody with the same type of injury and send them to the hospital. I forget the numbers. I think it's three people with the same type of injury in the course of X period of time. That gets you an OSHA inspection. Or kill one person and you get an OSHA inspection. But they're a reactive force. They're That's not a very force. reactive. Yeah. yeah. They're not a proactive force unless somebody has lodged a complaint. And even then, that's reactive. Um, we are uh, still to this day a self regulated industry. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't until um, the, the great big shots of our business started building stages that were structurally interesting that engineers became part of our dialogue. Prior to that, scaffolding companies just went out there and bashed up scaffolding and somebody strapped a sheet to it and turned it into a sail. But then, but then we got creative and then companies like Tate came along and, and, and other big staging companies came along and they were building interesting structures that required a, you know, an expert to look at, will this structure stay in the air? So engineers came along, but engineers came along to look at the structure. They didn't plan for safety. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, what we don't rec well, that's the problem goes back to we don't ask anything of the leaders in our business to have. We don't. There's no skills you need to have to do what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. You can be the guy who's friends with the DJ that just became the overnight sensation, and tomorrow you've got a hundred thousand people in the field under your duty of care because you got lucky. Yep. And you haven't had any. You've not developed any skills yet. <laughs> our, our, our argument is, and while that's funny, our argument is at the moment, our industry still relies on OJT. And, and, and for a, a veteran like myself, I feel like I've got instinctually and intuitively, I can pretty much step over any pile of shit that gets laid in front of me, pretty much. But if I'm a new guy and my moment, my crisis moment comes in my first week or my first year, and I've not, and and that and, and as a new person, I haven't traversed these fields before, so I don't have the instinctive or intuitive nature to know what to do in response. Holy shit! There's lightning on the horizon. I'm new, and I got a hundred thousand people out here. We're we're setting ourselves up for yet another catastrophic failure. And it's mm-hmm. not until we, as an industry, start demanding that those who lead us, crew chiefs, stage managers, production managers, tour managers have to prove some basic level of competency that we can expect this, you know, can, that we can have and appreciate this level of expected safety, this uh, presumed safety. But at the moment, we don't ask those things. And at the moment, we're still flying by the seat of our pants, making it up as we go along. Yeah, so we've already covered a lot of the other inherent safety precautions that we've had to face in the past. And now we're in a new abnormal as uh, has has been said 
now we all have to start looking at each other and going like, now what do we do? We, we already have all these safety precautions to worry about. And now we have a global pandemic that has shut down our industry. How do we, how do we move forward safely now? What's, yeah. can, can we even, uh, who, who do we even talk to for experts? How do we move forward yeah. now? Well, I, I think, Again, I'll reference the, the origin story of the ESA and what we've been able to do in our eight-year history. So you have Indiana. Our focus is on structure, plans, weather. And then we have something like Christina Grimmie uh, shot at a mean greet. And then we have the uh, Pulse nightclub. And then we have um, the, the warehouse uh, illegal dance club fire. You know, Pre-ESA, there was the station nightclub fire in Rhode Island. And then from Pulse Nightclub, I think we had Bataclan. And from Bataclan, I think we had Manchester. And from there, I think we had Vegas. And my timeline might be out of whack, but it's pretty close. I, I, what, yeah, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that the ESA came to be over this problem. And then the industry experienced a new one that took lives. So we expanded our scope. And then we had a different one that took lives and we expanded our scope again. And in each of these uh, seminal moments, the ESA has tried as an all volunteer organization, by the way, has attempted to shift its ability to address the latest problem that's affecting our industry. So, you know, now we come, that's relevant because now we come to this pandemic, who knew, right? Who knew that the entertainment industry has always been the thing that survived, right? This is, yep. that, that, even in the times of the depression or when the freaking Titanic sank, the musicians still played on, right? So yep. the entertainment industry has always survived and has been the life's blood for when things are bad. And oh, by the way, when things go really bad, the government calls us to put on a show to make everybody feel better, right? Yep. So now we come to this place in the pandemic where crap, we don't even get to work. Uh, to, even in epidemics, we were, got called in, even for the, the SARS outbreak, they're like, well, we clearly have to put on a Stones concert. And now right, we're right. for the first time in history, they're like, dead in the water. Nothing. Yeah, dead in the yep. water. And, 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 you know, listen, I, I wouldn't, regardless of your political affiliation, I wouldn't want to be the leader having to face these challenges because, you know, your choices are two shit turds. It's make everybody stay home to make the pandemic go away and, and um, you know, destroy the economy or let people go back to work and destroy lives because they're all exposing, you know, they're causing a more rapid expansion of the disease. Right. They're both shitty problems to have, but, you know, in some of the scientific discussions we've had through the ESA, one of the reasons Asia does so well right now in this pandemic and interestingly, Central and Western Africa as well is because it's not the first time, right? They had Ebola, they had it in big numbers. So they rehearsed their plan and they, right. had, they got to do the same kind of critical thinking in the process a decade ago where we're getting it for the first time and we're a society of mixed, um, of mixed, of, uh, of mixed stance on this pandemic, right? <laughs> So it was very uh, PC. Yeah. Yeah. We, we may divert from that in a bit, but, um, <laughs> but that, you know, so, so we're failing miserably at how to respond to this pandemic yeah. um, as a country. And, and we didn't, we don't have to be, we didn't have to be nine months ago. 
and we and surely shouldn't have to be failing miserably right now. And, and that goes back to leadership. We, we just don't have leadership. The idea that this should be state-led or county-led is ridiculous because it's like the pandemic is like gravity. It affects yeah. everybody. And in, a, in 48 contiguous United States, people are traveling every day across border. And yeah. if we don't adopt a universal nationwide plan, we're not getting out of this anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ESA, uh, you know, Steve Edelman and, and Jacob Work, the one paid guy in the organization, saw very early on that we needed to quickly get out there because our community was going to try, as they should, every little thing they could to get back to work or to sustain a little bit longer. So let's get something out there quickly um, based on science that if you're inclined to want to try to get back to work, follow these guidelines at least as a measure of reasonable precautionary behavior so you don't find yourself in court and, and to not make the problem worse for our industry. That was our biggest point. Don't go out there and cause harm. Right. right? So by May, mid-May, we had released the ESA's reopening guidance um, based on the WHO, the CDC, and 300 of our really smart friends who all came around and helped contribute to it, at least review the material. Um, and we just released a, a, the six-month revamp of it, which basically isn't a revamp at all because the same things we knew in May, with, with the exception of one, um, are true today. And it's the same basic principle. Wear your mask, wash your freaking hands, stay six feet apart, and don't be a dick, right? I mean, it's, it's basically that. It's basically, mm-hmm. you know, we can do this. We, we can embrace how hard this is. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing really that's kind of changed is that we, in May, WHO and CDC thought that there was a lot more risk with surface contamination right. than they do today. Uh, so we kind of te- we tampered that language down a little bit, um, tamped that language down a little bit, and uh, and and Steve wrote a um, a new preface to the whole guidance that kind of addresses our our psychological response to COVID at this point in time and mm-hmm. why that's important to consider. But I, you know, I I'm not, I'm like everybody else. I there is no easy answer here. Ticketmaster is announcing that they're going to create a mechanism that allows you to be a verified customer um, uh, if you get your shot. I think that's a tool in the toolbox. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, social distancing and mask wearing, tools in the toolbox. Uh, And they're all really important. But unless we all agree that we value each other more than we value uh, money or the experience of being at a show, we're going to be stuck in this this, uh, whirling dervish for a while. Yeah. It's so tough because when what we go to concerts for is to be close to each other. It is the sitting next to each other and it is everybody sitting in a room shoulder to shoulder, soaking up the same message. And we all want that. I mean, there's nobody that I've talked to in the last nine months or forever who doesn't want that. It's just what are we willing to do to get that? We all want the freedoms, but it's the responsibilities that come with those freedoms that we kind of have to figure out which ones we're willing to uh, work with. The points of congestion that I think of are the, the, the ticket sales, the lineups, the, the lines, people getting in, the, the sitting. These are all things that we just have to work out. 
Yeah, I, I I agree first on the human experience of being together in the room. Like, oh yeah, I don't I don't care how you define that. If that's a theater in New York, you know, a darkened theater in New York for the Christmas Story, or it's you know Lion King, or it's Disney, or it's a conference or a convention or a trade show, or or music in Central Park, there is something about that the human spirit that is that is affected has a resonating effect for having been in that moment in time with a bunch of other humans. Right. Mm -hmm. And that crowd sometimes can be 50 people or it can be 50,000 people. There is that there's something about the energy spirit that we gain from that, that is meaningful. And we've seen it, we've seen it, we've seen it manifest itself negatively and positively. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And there's, you know, we need to have those moments to be complete as humans, I believe. You know, entertainment or dancing around the fire has been going on since the dawn of man. And I think that's because there, you know, we aren't spiritually complete unless we can have those kinds of moments. Forget the economy of it. I mean, that, that's, that's absolutely important, but there's a necessity yeah. for what we do as well. So, you know, I've started to you know, have this kind of thought experiment that, and I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure there are other people having the same idea. Uh, you know, if I can, if I can accept that there are 200 people in the most closed containment vessel on the planet, an airplane, and that because the airplane's air circulation system is so great mm-hmm. that that I can go on a plane and be safe and not catch COVID, then can I create that same environment inside a small venue? Can I pull up a Greco? have them add, you know, take some of the equipment that's sitting around doing nothing right now, add it to a door, mm-hmm. which was a fire exit. It doesn't need to be a fire exit now because my capacity set at half, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Add some HEPA filtration, open another window, whatever the case may be, and wear masks and keep socially distant because I've reduced um, ex- you know, uh, capacity um, and put out hand washing stations. And I've got a compliant audience. Right. Could I do events? Well, in Germany, in Leipzig, they've just proved that that is the case. Can but it, it well, yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. But we got to commit to it, and we have to, and and the audiences have to be compliant as well. And right. I'm, 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 the phrase, the phrase I'm working with is, there's a thing called septed, and I know it only because I'm a safety geek now. But say, septed is, um, uh, say, oh shit, um, <laughs> uh, crime prevention. Crime prevention through environmental design. And it's the idea that, you know, you put bollards up in front of a shopping mall so nobody drives a truck into the mall and mows a bunch of people down, right? Right. So you, through the environmental design, you have created this safe environment. Um, so, I, so for me, it's pathogen uh, mitigation through environmental design. Can we take existing facilities, create a different atmosphere, reduce capacity, add all these other tools together and come up with a safe environment? And is that experiment repeatable? And does it scale with different venue types? Mm-hmm. In Germany, they're so sure that that's a possibility that the German government is giving money to the venues and to the restaurants and the bars to upgrade their, their air conditioning, their air handling systems. Yeah, The government's doing that because it sees that it builds resilience in their country. Brilliant. And that ultimately, those tax dollars from you buying the beer go back to the government. Yep. Right? So there's real leadership. 
there's real financial stability in the country and there's a real governmental plan to fix this, address this problem and increase the country's resiliency. So the next time it happens, maybe Germany will be the last one shut down and we're still doing shows there. Mm -hmm. So I believe there's something to that. Uh, you know, we're, I'm having discussions with people who, who like the idea of that experiment. There's a whole lot of other questions that come along with it. It may not be an answer, but we, what we have demonstrated as an industry is that we will continue to try things until we get it right. We're yes. not giving up. <laughs> right. As a, as a species, we just keep trying things, even if they, we try and uh, keep what works and try and get rid of what doesn't work. That's genetic mutation, isn't it? But uh, what a great idea. The government stepping in, having a plan and putting money where they know that they'll get a return without infringing on any rights without with minimal inconvenience and they can get things back up and running quicker that's what a national plan is and but it has to be on a federal level because if if somebody's on a tour and they go through california and they're doing all the things and then they go to idaho and they're not doing those things they just have to bypass idaho that's right so the people of Idaho suffer, the, the taxpayers of Idaho suffer, you know, we suffer as a community, an entertainment community, because we don't have Idaho on the, on the stop. Idaho is just an analogy here, folks. Just an, um, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, I love you, Idaho. I think, I think the point, I think the point is, is on, is on point, And that is that without clear leadership, that's values based, that's, that's, you know, long-term resiliency based. We're not going to get there, and, yeah. and we don't have, we don't currently have that. And then if we did, we're still fighting something close to half of the population who believe that the science is is not true, and believe that mask wearing is an infringement on their rights, and are continuing to create super spreader moments, um, which which means that we're we're not getting out of this anytime soon. We really aren't. Mm -hmm. Which makes me think that uh, maybe this is going to happen again. Uh, I don't think this is going to be the last one. It's definitely not the first pandemic or epidemic. It's, it's not even the deadliest, but I, this is going to happen again. And I hope that we are able to learn from this one so that we can make the next one more of an inconvenience than a, uh, than a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, uh... Geez, God, I hope so. I, I, I hope we don't find ourselves back in this place. I, I know, like you, I worry for our, our friends and our community. I, you know, there are, there are people that we've worked with that are sleeping in their car or that can't feed themselves right now. And, you know, that's, that's an awful place for us to be. And, and that, that kind of brings us to the part of the conversation where we've got, a, there's a lot we need to fix for our industry, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot we need to examine and commit to not repeating for our industry so that when this happens again, not if, when this happens again, we don't find our sisters and brothers sleeping in their cars or, you know, mentally unfit or eating from, you know, a, you know, a food station, um, mm -hmm. food bank. Um, there's only so much we can take on and do at any given time. And we, I think as an industry, you know, the government, as an industry, we need to commit to not letting it be, not letting it continue that way for sure. I would imagine if we have all the protocols in place, the next time the government comes and tries to say, Hey, we need you to shut down. 
somebody can go to a piece of paper and say, no, no, we don't need to shut down. We will, we'll do this. We'll do this and we'll do it consistently. And we will maintain these levels of safety so that we can stay open. I can only imagine that if we, if we are, if we all put our noggins together, we can come up with that piece of paper to say, no, we're, we're going to maintain these safe levels and, and continue to, to put on events. It's, it's risk, it's risk assessing, it's risk Absolutely. mitigation, it's risk managing. Right. And, and there, there will always be, uh, I, I've just started a dialogue with a new level of safety. I've taken my nerd, my safety geekness one step further to strategic risk management, which was not something that was currently in the ESA's orbit, but this is the place where, you know, the crisis managers look at things like railroad cars full of nuclear waste going off the tracks and breaking open, right? It's, it's taking it to the nth degree. And in strategic risk management, it's not a crisis until you can't react to it, right? Everything below that, and I've, I've lost how, how it's defined, but everything below crisis is a manageable event, big or small, mm-hmm. still a manageable event. But we're in a crisis right now because we have a paralysis of leadership. And, and I think, you know, as much as I love those jokes that when roadies or those commercials, when roadies rule the earth or when roadies take, you know, there, I think some part of me, and it's probably too much self pride in our industry, pride in our industry wants to think that if you just let us handle it, we'd have been, we'd have been on with it by now. Right? We'd, have been, <laughs> we'd have fixed it by now. Yeah. I know that's not true. I know that, doc, you know, it takes the Dr. Fauci's of the world to get us through these moments. But part of, you know, you bring in the government and saying to the government, here's our, here's our protocol, here's our risk mitigation policy. You're going to let us stay open. You know, we're going to use the force on you. You know, that only will work <laughs> That only will work when the government recognizes who we are and what we do and that we know what we're doing. And, right. and one of the many problems that we're faced with today as an industry is they don't. We, we've, there, we have so many splintered factions who have gone to the government and tried to get relief, Broadway, theater, Vegas, clubs, restaurants, bars, you know, you name it, concerts, conventions, trade shows, fairs, festivals, we don't speak as the 12 million voice strong that we really are. We speak as the splinter groups of that voice. So, mm-hmm. and the government, when you, when you say something to a politician, like, well, we're all, we're all contracted itinerant labor or we're all freelancers. Like, why would you do business like that? They're really astounded at, at the fact that the artists aren't paying these teams of people all the time and giving them health insurance. What a dumb way to do business, they say. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I think first we've got to put our big boy britches on and big girl britches on it and, and demonstrate as an industry enter arts and entertainment at large is a unified voice, not a union mind you, but that we, we rep, you know, there is representation that takes into account Broadway, Vegas, touring fairs, festivals, you name it. And with one voice ish, we, we are able to demonstrate our $1.4 trillion effect on the GDP as mm-hmm. opposed to a hundred different voices demonstrating small portions of that. 1.4 trillion is a big deal for the GDP, right? Oh yeah. Um, but we can't do that until we respect ourselves. And that goes back to this idea that we have no credentials in our business. We've got the ETCP certified rigor. We've got the ETCP certified electrician. That's great. 
but when a rigging accident happens in an entertainment event, do they call an ETCP rigger to, to, to the court to testify as the expert witness on the plaintiff's side? They don't. They call mm -hmm. a construction rigger or an oil refinery rigger or a sailing rigger to court because they've got credentials and a proven track record, and, you know, these other things behind them that make them the qualified experts, even though they don't work in our business. Mm -hmm. So first, we've got to take ourselves seriously. We've got to rewrite our values in the industry. And then we've got to be able to demonstrate that because we take ourselves seriously, we ask for reasonable behavior amongst those who lead us and those who lead us that can demonstrate that they've qualified to be leading us. And then perhaps the government will take us seriously. That is uh, that's words of wisdom right there. Uh, we are almost out of time. So I wanted definitely want to get into what we uh, set forth to talk about, which is the event safety summit, which is December 7th through December 11th of 2020. And uh, that's for anybody who wants to take an even deeper dive into all the stuff that we've been discussing. I know that you guys are going to be covering many topics, uh, including what we had mentioned, the, the new abnormal. You're going to talk about the difference between outdoor events. You guys are going to talk about COVID-19, safety leadership, uh, performers' roles in safety. Can you give a, just a quick summary of what the summit is going to include? Yeah. First, love for the audience to know that the ESA has removed all pricing on the event safety guide. So the reopening guidance went out for free. The event safety guide, once we were able to clear our publishing deal, is now available for free download. Our basic safety training went from nearly $100 to $9.95 per user, and that's what it costs us to keep it out there on the learning management system. So, um, you know, we've done everything we can to make all of our resources available for free for our community. As soon as COVID came down, we saw that and, and we, 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 we took action because we knew people would want to occupy their time. We, we'd hope people would want to occupy their time with improving their professional development. So the conference itself is typically in Lidditz um, because the campus is expansive and it's uh, near to our near to my home, and it you know normally it's a week long and normally it's twelve hundred dollars or something like that, uh, and uh, we bring it. The reason it's that expensive is we bring in experts from around the world to talk about their different sectors of safety, and kind of uh, you know help our industry grow. We've had an aspirational desire to make it significantly less expensive and to make it virtual when we're doing it in person as well so that everybody can reap the benefit of this knowledge. And COVID has landed that in our lap. So this year we're doing it, I think, also for less than $100. And you know, it's all virtual. And we're, we're bringing in the same subject matter experts from around the world, leading voices in safety for a variety of discussion points not related all to COVID. In fact, we, we, we purposely didn't want to bury ourselves in COVID and stop teaching the things we've been teaching. And we hope that the industry will, will find the ability to, to make the time to do this. I'm just as tired as the next person who's sitting on webinars and, and, <laughs> and all the rest. But, you know, I think now, <clears throat> look, it's an interesting reflection on, <clears throat> on the ESA, and I promise to get to the question is that you know, we fought tooth and nail for eight years to get to a thousand people in our database, right? Subscribing to our newsletter or, and, and some number less than that of paid membership. 
it's a nonprofit, so it runs on donations and volunteerism. We got when when COVID hit, our numbers skyrocketed through the roof. Now we're the pretty kids at the dance, right? And everybody everybody's worried about safety. Our our original guidance was downloaded through our site twenty seven thousand times, and that's not to say how many times it's been out in circulation without us. I mean, outside of our our, our site, mm-hmm. so. It's great that everybody's paying attention right now. We don't want to lose that momentum. So we're, we're trying to be as accessible as we possibly can. And we're trying to ensure that the things we're talking about are relevant and necessary for our industry and that they're easily ingestible. You know, it's like you know, sitting in Lidditz for five days in November, you've got to really be committed to it, which was one of the reasons we did it. Like we'd gone to Vegas, too many distractions. Go to LA, too many distractions. This is serious. It's safety. Come to Lidditz, you won't be distracted by anything about what we're doing, right? <laughs> um, Very clever. So, so this year we're on topic with so many of our, our usual talking um, points and learning points, and there's COVID discussion, but it's a great place to expand your horizon, not just for safety, but for the kind of people who think safety first and you know, make some new acquaintances in the corporate world and make some new acquaintances in the insurance world. And, and have the kinds of discussions that lead to better days ahead and not creating you know, the same mistake twice. You hit on uh, some of the things we'll be talking about. We're gonna be, we're gonna be hearing from the NBA and, and their teachable moment about the bubble they created around moving the NBA around without becoming a COVID hotspot. You know, we're talking about uh, the NCAA and their decision to go forward. I'm doing like you did. I'm looking at our own website. Uh, (laughs) I will uh, include a link so that everybody can uh, look even deeper. Rigging is always there. Tents, you know, we always see tents flying around in weather. And, And we're continuing to try to drive the idea that safety is everybody's responsibility and that it starts with you and that as an industry, we're gonna be much better off if we derive the safety needs of our industry internally with our own experts than if we cause more accidents and have a government, especially like the one we have right now, come in and try to tell us how to do business. Yep. We're smart enough to do these things right. And I like to think so. Yeah, and I'd like to think that our only desire with the ESA is to to keep us all healthy. You know, I got kids that are going to go to shows. I don't want shit falling down on them. Right. I want to go home and have dinner with my kids too. Exactly. It, you know, so it's in our, it's under self-survival really more than anything. And now more than ever with COVID and with the world changing the way that it is and safety being a massive consideration for artists, they're going to want to know it's important to get your safety on, you know, get, get, you embrace it, love it. It's not going to hurt mm-hmm. you. And, and, you know, if I can learn this stuff, anybody can learn this stuff. And it really was. The whole journey started as self-survival. I didn't want to have those mistakes happen to me. So hopefully people will find the Event Safety Summit in 2020 this year virtually and then come and do it in person. We've got some really great things on the horizon for how we're going to continue to grow the organization. And we were the, the thing we're most... Uh, upset by in COVID was 2020 was the year we were going to take the show on the road and appear at USITT and appear at LDI and appear at, at uh, NAM mm. and we didn't get to do that because because of COVID but we were finally we had finally gotten ourselves to a place where we felt confident about going out into the world 
and 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 trying to help deliver the word you know i will definitely include a link so that everybody can check that out and uh let's do what we can to uh keep our own noses clean so that we can keep uh the big government out of our out of our noses and uh make sure that prove everybody that we are uh, maintaining a safe level of uh, precaution and making sure that we're keeping all of our people safe. Yeah. I got Thank so you, much Jim. more. We, we'll have to do another hour some other time. Easily, I could <laughs> easily fill another hour. There were a couple tangents there that I really wanted to go, but we just couldn't do it. Yeah, me too. I, I, I felt like we, well, okay, let's stay on this one subject because I can, <laughs> get, I can go down tangent lane all day long, but I'm so grateful for the ask to Chris, man. It's, it's, it's a pleasure and I'm grateful that you and, and others are out there giving our community the chance to share their voice and share their journey and, and inspire hopefully some young people to, to get involved. And you know, if I can offer just one closing thought, it's that you know, check on your friends and colleagues. You know, right now it's really tough for a lot of people and you know, I wake up and call a few people if you can. Absolutely. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. For 